Welcome to the Compliance 911 Show, a no-nonsense podcast discussing hot topics for today's busy compliance professional. It's everything you wanted to know about regulatory compliance, but we're afraid to ask. And now, here are your hosts, Dean Stockford of M&M Consulting and Len Suzio of Geodata Vision. Welcome to our podcast series, Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask About Regulatory Compliance. This is Len Suzio with Geodata Vision. And this is Dean Stockford from M&M Consulting. Dean, I know you've covered many aspects of fair lending in both the consumer and commercial episodes, but can you expand on the more technical provisions for Equal Credit Opportunity and Fair Housing Act? Of course, Len. As you know, ECOA and Fair Housing Act deal with discrimination in the lending process, and we often focus on many of the riskier areas within these acts to ensure that financial institutions are not discriminating. However, there are many technical requirements for both ECOA and Fair Housing Act. The first real challenge when dealing with equal credit opportunity in the Fair Housing Act is with credit applications themselves and the clear difference between what is a request or an inquiry or an actual application for credit. An inquiry is when a potential applicant requests information about a loan product and responses related only to the product information, such as rates, terms, product offered, qualifying debt ratios, uh, are offered by the institution. No opinion relative to approval or denial is offered at that point. So, Dean, when does the inquiry become an application? An inquiry becomes an application for credit when the lender actually evaluates the information provided by the applicant, decides what their decision would be, whether they're going to deny it or accept the information, and then communicates that to the consumer or prospective applicant. Some examples of an inquiry are, do you offer HELOCs? What are your interest rates on 30-year mortgages? Do you require escrows on real estate type loans? What are terms for new cars? What kind of information do you need from me to start a mortgage? Uh, Do you offer student loans? Uh, The creditor would provide just basic information on any of those various scenarios, uh, but does not evaluate the credit worthiness. So, Dean, what's the big deal? Why is it so important to distinguish between an inquiry or a request for credit? Yeah, excellent question. Equal credit opportunity includes very strict timeframes, again, getting into the technical components for responding to applications. Once we have an actual request for credit, the regulation is very clear that re- that require institutions to respond within 30 days. So you actually have 30 days from the initial request to respond, and then you have 30 days to take action on a completed application. So this is still a little confusing. What do you mean when you say that institutions have 30 days from an initial request? I notice it does not indicate application. Correct. And that can get a little bit confusing, but the distinction is within the definition of application. Reg B provides an application is an oral or written request for an extension of credit that is made in accordance with the procedures established by a creditor for the type of credit requested. And of course, emphasis added in that particular area, 
uh, with the procedures established. In other words, the regulation does leave a lot of flexibility uh, with the institution, and the flexibility refers to the actual practices that each institution use uh, for making credit decisions as well as their stated application procedures. Example of that would be if a creditor's stated policy is to require all applications to be in writing on the creditor's application form, but the creditor also makes credit decisions based on oral or verbal requests, the creditor's established procedures are to accept both oral and written applications. So is it correct lenders have 30 days to take action on an application? Well, you're partially correct. As I mentioned, you have 30 days from initial request and then 30 days from the completed application to take action. So let me help break this down a little bit. The first provision requires the financial institution to respond to applications within 30 days from the initial request. This actually means the institution received an application for credit, but the, the application is not complete in order for the financial institution to make a decision. With an incomplete application, you cannot just set it on the back credenza and forget it as the compliance clock continues to tick. An incomplete application is not clearly defined within Reg B. However, you need to do something to stop the clock and the regulation offers alternatives for doing so. The first option, the financial institution can issue what they call a notice of incompleteness, that advising what is needed, when you need it by, and that you'll give no further consideration to the application itself. I've always kind of called that more of a uh, an applicant-friendly form where it's very specific and pointed as to this is what we need, this is when we need it by, we'll give no further consideration, uh, and essentially the loan officer could move on from there. The financial institution could alternatively issue what they call an adverse action notice indicating that the application is complete. In both cases, these actions stop the clock and the institution be required, uh, would not be required, excuse me, to take any further action. Okay. So it's clear that you need to take action on the initial request, but what about when the application is complete? Yeah, per Reg B, which is the letter regulation that surrounds the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the completed application is an application in which a creditor has received all of the information that they would regularly obtain and consider in evaluating applications for the amount and the type of credit that's being requested. So once you have all of that information in the form of what we call a completed application, then you have 30 days to actually take action. The financial institution will either approve it, they'll deny it, or they'll make a counteroffer. In addition, you could have what we call an expressed withdrawal if the applicant withdraws that application prior to any type of decisioning uh, on that loan or application. Okay, so once you have com the, the completed application, you have 30 days to respond. Uh, and But what kinds of actions or types of actions would the bank take? Yeah, the regulation provides the following actions to be taken within 30 days of a completed application. Again, I mentioned we can have an applicant withdrawal, and this is an expressed withdrawal. So while in certain cases we're not required to uh, notify in writing, we are required to meet record-keeping requirements. And so in this case, we would document who called us or who notified us and when they notified us in order to uh, 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 meet record-keeping requirements surrounding what we call applicant withdrawals. A counteroffer is, in fact, adverse action. It is a denial because we're denying them on the initial uh, terms and conditions for which they requested, and we're offering an alternative. Again, the regulation provides a prescribed format 
uh, in different forms for offering that counteroffer. We can simply make them a counteroffer in writing. Uh, and if they accept that, that's great. Uh, if they don't accept that in writing, then we have the evidence of the record keeping of the counteroffer. However, we have to go out within 90 days of that counteroffer if it's not accepted uh, and deny them on the initial terms and conditions for which they requested. An adverse action notice, that is when we, that requires specific written notification um, in writing to them of the reasons why we are not going to uh, move forward with an application, why we're denying it, what are the reasons for it. And in this particular case, regulators have said you would want to indicate all possible reasons for adverse action up to and not exceeding four, they don't find that to be helpful to the applicant if you use more than four possible reasons for adverse action. And then, of course, the last one, uh, which everybody likes, and that is approval. Um, and once again, it's very clear, uh, clear that we have to document uh, who we notified and when we notified them in order to stop the clock or meet what we call the compliance clock. Uh, so we'd want to make sure that we communicate who we called uh, or communicated the approval to and when uh, so we can tie that back to the apple the application date for compliance purposes so uh and every situation is a written communication required or is oral communication acceptable yeah oral is acceptable in certain cases and again we have to meet record keeping requirements so anytime you hear the word oral you have to be certainly step back and consider uh, what we need to meet for record keeping and, and compliance purposes. So ECOA requires specific written notification when taking adverse action. A notification given to the applicant when adverse action is taken shall be in writing and it shall contain a statement of the action that we're actually taking. We have to be careful as we need to make sure we maintain sufficient records to support compliance. So if we have an approval, as opposed to adverse action that does require specific written notification. We want to see how this was communicated to the applicant, as I indicated before. So we'd want to document uh, who we communicated the approval to and when that was done. Dean, are there any other provisions under ACOA that you'd like to uh, address today uh, for our audience? Yeah, seeing how we're touching on almost all of the technical aspects of ACOA, uh, I would like to talk about just a couple of other uh, provisions within the act. The collection of government monitoring information, the race, sex, ethnicity, is also required for any purchase or refinance of primary residence, and that residence is also securing the transaction. In addition to the collection of government monitoring information, regulations also deal with what we call spousal signature restrictions. This has been an issue goes dates back to 1968. Under Reg B, a creditor may not require the signature of an applicant's spouse or any other person for that matter, other than a joint applicant on any credit instrument if the applicant qualifies for the amount and the terms of the credit requested under the creditor standards for credit worthiness. This rules applies to open-end and closed-end secured, unsecured extensions of consumer credit and business credit. This also requires financial institutions to document what we call joint intent on the application, which we have seen significant uh, uh, changes to the residential mortgage applications where we have to document someone's intent to be joint on that application. In addition to that, rules exist for providing appraisals or other evaluations. 
In general, a creditor has to provide an applicant a copy of all of the appraisals or other written evaluations that were developed in connection with the application for credit when it is secured by a first lien on a dwelling. They should provide a copy of each appraisal or other written valuation promptly upon the completion or within three business days prior to the consummation of the transaction for closed-end credit and at account opening for open-end credit, whatever whatever is earlier is, is appropriate. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you, there's a lot of technical but still very important provisions within ACOA, obviously. It, it certainly underscores why it's so important for financial institutions to train their lending staff regularly about ACOA. Len, I'm so glad you mentioned training. It's, it's extremely important for the financial institutions to have strong training programs and controls around the lending process. In fact, regulatory expectations uh, are out there relative to uh, fair lending training overall, which does include the technical components uh, on an annual basis. And that is not just staff, but also at the board level. Dean, I, I want to thank you for expanding on the technical provisions under ECOA. And with the political climate the way it is in Washington, I'm certain our audience found today's topic timely. This is Len Suzio with GeoData Vision. And this is Dean Stockford from Eminem Consulting saying thank you for listening to today's podcast. And please let us know any additional topics you would like to hear in future episodes. Thanks for listening to the Compliance 911 Show. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, please give us a like and review to help others find the show. As always, links are in the show notes, and you can always find us online at compliance911show.com. Follow M&M Consulting and Geodata Vision on LinkedIn for all the latest news and information on compliance hot topics.